Founded at the beginning of the UK lockdown, A Bit Lit is about conversation, celebrating and exploring theatre, literature and creative work across all periods and of all kinds. We've talked to professional wrestlers and about Ghostbusters and medieval sex positivity. We've looked at the histories of race, gender and sexuality. We followed migrating coconuts and the history of wine and cheese. We've gone from Jane Austen and Shakespeare to EastEnders via the history of early television, young adult fiction, photography, animation and documentary making. And with over 100 films already, many other subjects as well. Join the conversations at our website, abitlit.co, or on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, at abitlit. Rachel, hello, how are you? Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm very good. And Dustin, how is it going? Uh, Very well, thank you. (laughs) It's really good to have the two of you here. We start our films by asking our contributors to introduce themselves and to tell us a little bit about their work. So Rachel, may I hand over to you first, please? Sure. So I am Rachel Mesh. I am a professor of French and English at Yeshiva University, which is located in New York City. Um, And I am a scholar, literature scholar by training, um, a French in the late 19th century, so primarily um, fantasy at Belle Epoque. Um, But my work has become much more historical and material culture, visual culture. Um, I started really working on women writers and gender um, but my, the, the book we're talking about today, this most recent work, um, came from the realization that many of the people who, um, I was thinking of as women or were treated as women and considered sort of in this feminist context actually did not see themselves as women at all. Um, and so that's what brought me to the four trans. <laughs> Always have a prop. Um, Three Gender Stories from 19th Century France, where it's a it's a triple biography, literary biography, where I sort of retell um, the stories of these writers and try to understand through their interaction with various 19th century um, discourses and available narratives, how they understood themselves in a time that was before one readily had language in which to talk about gender sort of as a thing, um, let alone gender nonconformity um, and the sort of broad spectrum of trans. Great, thank you very, very much. Um, and Dustin, likewise, would you introduce yourself and your work, please? Sure. Uh, I'm Dustin Friedman, and I am assistant professor in the Department of Literature at American University in Washington, D.C. And today I'm talking about my my first book, uh, which is called uh, Before Queer Theory, Victorian Aestheticism and the Self, uh, which, uh, as many uh, first books are, was based on my doctoral dissertation. And uh, the project uh, really arose out of um, some frustrations that I was having in in graduate school, reading uh, works of Victorian aesthetes and trying to think about the queer elements of the work, the elements that had to do with sexuality and the elements that had to do with aesthetics and and sort of finding that reading through the criticism there really seemed to be like an either or mentality like you either focused on the aesthetic element or the sexual element um which didn't really make sense to me because i I think aesthetics and sexuality intersect with each other all the time 
um, in, in our lives, right? So um, it, it kind of arose out of trying to figure out a, a vocabulary to talk about the aesthetics of sexuality, sexuality of aesthetics. Um, and what I end up arguing in, in this book is that a lot of these Victorian aesthetes anticipate um, key concepts of queer theory in their writings, but that this hasn't really been recognized as such um, precisely because there's been a difficulty with talking about aesthetics and sexuality together in, in Western culture, at least since Kant, I think, if not, if not Plato. Um, and then also, and this is probably the most controversial element of the book, is that I sort of understand their writings to be grounded in a notion of subjective autonomy, of, of this notion of, of independent self-direction, which um, queer theorists have, for many very, very good reasons, been sort of skeptical of because of its association with the Enlightenment project. So I say that the aesthetes um, actually articulate a much more interesting and nuanced version of subjective autonomy in their writings, and that they did so by turning to, to the philosophy of Hegel and his concept of the negative. And that by doing so, they were able to conceive the reception, production, consumption, engagement with art as a technique for building, or at least cobbling together um, a viable sense of self in a homophobic society. And I see that as being a technique that queer people still use even today um, to, to sort of uh, develop a sense of workable selfhood. And sorry, my headphones falling out. Um, and uh, like, and actually, um, uh, Rachel, I thought that that was a real kind of overlap in our, in our, in our works, right? Turning to, to sort of art and storytelling to, to develop a sense of self. So that's my deal. Yeah, thank you. That's really helpful. Yeah, building and cobbling together forms of subjective autonomy now and then feels like a really uh, important strand through both of the work. Rachel mentioned the importance of having a prop. Look, I'm double double propped, double propped. I'm ready, I'm ready here with the two books. Congratulations to you both. Um, and it does feel like there's a most wonderful array of overlaps and we'll pick up on Dustin's suggestion in a, in a moment, but working at roughly the same time period, working um, mostly from, um, centers of power within countries at the center of empires. Um, but at the same time, uh, working with one country which has recently been invaded and another country which purely by dint of the English channel has not recently been invaded. And I think that's something which is often quite important to English culture in a way that the English don't often acknowledge. They were protected by water um, from many of these things. And I think that maybe it has an impact on, on their culture. Um, we've got the centers of, of Oxford um, on the one hand, we've got questions about Iranian archaeological work on the other. So that these are these are books which overlap in lots of really rich and interesting ways and also take us in, in very different journeys. And they both have the word before at the start of their title. So I'm really interested in that. And again, that notion of building and cobbling together feels like something that's happening in the period that you're both studying and in the moment in which you are studying it. And quite often the books depict you chasing after these people in the act themselves of forms of research and in the act of thinking about what comes before them. So I, I wondered if, if it's all right, if we may start just with this strange preposition of before, what does it mean to work before 
There you go. That's the question. It's a very, very massive random one. Um, maybe if we start with Rachel, please. What what does before bring to you in this project? Yeah. Um, and I have to say, like, I discovered um, Dustin's book after this book was written because of the weird sort of stratified ways that disciplines are separate, right? And I'm and I immediately was like, oh my God, what is this book? I need to read this. Um, and I was so struck by the similarities. We end up doing something very different. Um, but I do, but they're exactly everything that you just delineated. Um, there's so many echoes and it's really about sort of a different approach. And I also hear echoes in looking at it um, and the methodology um, with my work on women writers, which was also, which was more about communities trying to, women trying to speak to each other in ways that were not part of the dominant discourse. Whereas this book um, was very individual <clears throat> because um, these writers weren't, couldn't really speak to each other so sort of under the surface and unarticulated and not sort of part of a, the, the transness of it um, really wasn't part of a, a way of speaking. Um, and so it's a little bit different that way. But, um, but in terms of before, um, right. So I think we're doing some, something similar, not to speak for you, Dustin, but, <laughs> um, but I can't help it because I was so, you know, everything was just sort of uh, all the neurons were firing as I was un underlining like every sentence of your introduction. Um, and then we both have these kind of personal moments also of discovery. So there's like the whole meta thing piece also, which we can talk about. Um, but before, um, right, you, you don't want to be anachronistic. Um, and, and of course, there's this sort of accusation of presentism. Are you just sort of reading through your own experience? Um, but to that, I always say like that that's what scholarship is right all scholarship is presentist that is what we are doing we're using our current critical tools to understand the past um and so i wanted a way to talk about i wanted people to put sort of put on a lens it wasn't about saying these writers are trans um which can mean all sorts of things i'm not not saying that <laughs> but depends on how you think about language right um and as people coming from literature and from from english um, and French PhDs, we're very careful with that, that in some ways much more so than some other disciplines that sort of can wield these terms more freely perhaps. Um, so, um, but I really just wanted, I realized like we are just looking at these people through the entirely wrong frame and that's the frame of feminism, which is one that is near and dear to my heart and the reason we know of these writers in the first place. But with the feminist, which is also a totally the uh, current way of looking at it because the way that scholars are defining, we're defining, are defining feminism um, is not in the 1885 version of it, right? It's our, our more expansive view. Um, and what that what happened was that we, we couldn't hear half of what they were saying. Um, and so simply switching the lens and saying they're talking about gender, right? They're not talking about their solidarity as women because they're telling us very clearly that they don't see themselves as women in all sorts of ways. Um, and so it was, I, I don't know if you struggled with this as well, Dustin, but figuring out how to articulate that without just putting a, you know, slapping a name on it, right? I didn't want to do that. I wanted to say, what do we see when we think about it this way? How can we hear their stories better and capture all the nuance and the fact that these are three writers writing entirely differently, living entirely different lives. They're not part of the same literary movement. They're writing in different genres, um, but they're all kind of working out very similar questions. Um, so actually an earlier version of it was called Trans Before Trans. And then my editors were a little bit like, well, is that too, the, you know, they're sort of the thinking about this changes every minute. Um, 
And, um, but it, it, so it was a way of making you, I want you to have that word in your head and to think about all that we sort of associate with that. Although I try to nuance it and frame it for you in the introduction, um, and then go in and, and, and hear these writers' voices in a way that is not filtered entirely through the discourses that they were pushing against. Because so often, and that's sort of part of my argument, um, and part of what methodologically I think links actually a lot of my work, but I hadn't sort of fully articulated it, is that we, but I, I see this in Dustin's work as well, right? We so often um, in, in the discipline, we're taught to think about these things and it's kind of a Foucauldian way of, of doing things um, through the discourses. There's no self outside of the discourse. And I want to ask Dustin where he stands with, with Foucault because, um, you know, can't live with him, can't live without him. But, um, um, but so much of what had been written about Rashield, for example, who was one of the main um, figures in the study, is just how did Rashield respond to medical discourse to this, to um, you know, primarily medical sexological discourses of the 19th century. And for someone who wrote literally like a book a year until they were 93 and spoke, it was so outspoken in photographs and, and was friends with everyone. We were, even in the biographies that exist of Rashield, there's so little of them that people feel comfortable pulling together. Um, in the end, it's just all about how Rashield responded to X, Y, and Z. And so um, sort of once you, I tried to recenter it, you know, what is Rashield saying? And we don't want to, you know, those discourses are important, but where is their own voice um, in all of that? Anyway, that's a long answer to your, much more to, than an answer to your question. <laughs> yes, uh, Rachel, that was, that was, that, that's great. And also, um, one of the best things about writing a book is hearing uh, other people talk about it, not just for ego reasons, uh, but also like it, it can be so clarifying to hear what other people sort of got out of, of engaging the text. So thank you so much for that. Uh, that's really a gift. And uh, similarly, I wasn't able to, to read uh, Rachel's book until after, before Queer Theory had gone to press. And if I was able to, that would have, I think, changed elements of, of, of the book. I think especially... Um, the discussion of of Vernon Lee, uh, who uh, you know is sort of um, giving off this very kind of uh, intentionally um, masculine appearance, doesn't quite fit within the kind of uh, trans uh, umbrella, at least in my reading. I think Rachel's book would have been really helpful for that. So maybe someday uh, when I return to when I return to Lee. Um, yeah, but but similar to, to what uh, Rachel was just saying, I was also uh, grappling with uh, what I felt was kind of a mismatch between the kind of academic theoretical discourse in which I was trained and then what I felt I was actually encountering in the literary texts. And and my my group is a bit different from, from what I think you're working on, Rachel, because my writers all kind of knew each other um, and we're all uh, pretty explicitly in dialogue with each other, uh, which I think is so interesting that this is kind of like a really kind of early example of like a queer literary coterie uh, in a sense, although they didn't call themselves esthetes at the time. They're, they're all very much um, in, engaged with each other intellectually and socially. Um, but yeah, where I was coming from with this beforeness, right, was this concern with 
not having quite the vocabulary and the conceptual structure to understand that these kind of early queer authors were doing deeply theoretical work and were thinking in very complex ways about how their uh, non-normative sexualities um, affected their their critical disposition, right? Um, and Andy, I think you're very right to identify um, that many of the people I write about are also doing scholarship, even while I'm doing scholarship on them. So there's a lot of like kind of like weird meta moments in the, the text, um, right? But it's about looking towards the past, especially art from the past, to to develop a kind of viable sense of queer selfhood, even in the most kind of deeply homophobic environments, right? Like how 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 do you get it together, right? Um, how did these people, even Oscar Wilde, right, find ways to get it together and 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 find like kind of like a like a like a a worthwhile sense of queer selfhood in in their particularly sort of homophobic social context. Um, and Rachel, I'm also, I've been pondering ever since you asked it, that, that Foucault question, where do I stand on Foucault? Um, and it's reminding me of, of an, an MLA panel I was on, on uh, theoretical foundations of Victorian studies. Um, and the comment was made that like wrong Foucault is almost like a subset of Victorian studies. Like people kind of pointing out the different ways that Foucault is wrong. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm there uh, because I'm still, as you said, Foucault is inescapable, and I think he's largely right about many things. Um, but what I find interesting is that even Foucault, in his late writing, ends up being kind of like, you know, subjective autonomy, like maybe there's something to be said for it if we kind of understand it apart from this kind of like titanic heroic enlightenment subjectivity. And we think of it as being kind of like a more humble, um, uh, creation of, of 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 some sort of self self direction self knowledge, and that's uh, that's what I see happening in the aesthetes. So I see affinities between them and sort of more the late the late Foucault. Yeah, Rich, I don't know if you want to respond to that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's so interesting because there's Foucault, and then there's how people use Foucault, um, and um, and I'll be interested to see how you progress. Because in my first book, I, in a way, like my first book was, I, I, our, our introductions go very well together um, because it, that was about women writers as this kind of literary community. And I, I wrote about it as a counter discourse. Um, and, and, they, and they were aware of each other and right there was shared discourse for talking about, about women. Um, but what I was, I was grappling with all the same issues of wanting to, find agency and their experiences of their bodies, because that was a book about sexuality and about women writing about sexuality um, and sort of taking ownership over their, their bodies. Of course, I had a chapter on Rashield there um, where I tried to kind of mold Rashield into the, you know, did what everybody has done with Rashield until this point. By the way, I don't know if you know that Rashield was a major influence on Wilde. Um, and there's been some, some work on that. Also, he read Monsieur Venus, they corresponded. It was a very, they met in Paris at some point. Um, and so that was actually kind of an important um, relationship. And so one of the other things that, um, that I think that the, I don't know if it's, I don't know if we can blame Foucault, but I'm, I'm in just in the mood to blame him for everything. Um, so I'm like, why do we have to go through Foucault? I know that I understand that these are, these were people, we are people, they are people. 
And what I felt again and again was just their declaration of selfhood um, through their writing, right? And so I think that's the other thing that is so powerful about our work together is just hearing it, you know, just, and then thinking about the women writers as another category, um, these, that's how in the late 19th century, and we can think about whether that time period means something specific for this as well, but they are using literature that way. They seem to understand um, in a new way how it can be, especially because there's so much writing about the body that's made possible through natural realism, naturalism and decadence. Um, so I've kind of uh, just, I, I, you know, I, this book is not, was trying to reach a wider audience quote unquote, which it did because that's how I'm talking to you guys. Like wider audience kind of just means outside of French literature, you know, fundamentally. Um, and so I was really discouraged from the beginning of being theoretical at all. And I don't think of myself as such a, a theory person these days. And then reflecting afterwards about what, what is my methodology? How, how, what is this book? Because I realized it's different from what other people are doing. So I must have a different methodology. So I've been trying to kind of articulate that. And I realized that I'm kind of breaking up with Foucault um, or not letting him lead and saying, you know, I don't have to go through you, man. I can do this on my own. Um, but at the same time, I realized like so many people who are using Foucault never name Foucault. And so the historians who really influenced my work because they do a lot of really important work on gender in the late 19th century, they're using Foucault, but they're, they don't realize that they are. We're all using Foucault because we're all thinking about discourses and performances and we're using Judith Butler using Foucault um, and gender trouble and all, you know, everything that sort of, that's all, that was my education. And so it does, it did really inform my thinking in terms of the kinds of analysis that I was that I was doing, um, but I really just, like I said, just kind of tried to recenter it um, so that I don't have to come to Rashield and these others through Foucault. I can just, you know, we can now look at them and, and see the ways in which um, they are a response to him. But, but I realized that my whole thesis, which my whole argument is about how they related to the available narratives. So it really is about, I mean, I fully embrace the whole idea of discourse and power and language and power, you know, all of that stuff, like you said, that those are, you know, those are key ideas from Foucault that are very much drive the way I think about, about the world. Um, and here, and yet you can still have a person saying, I don't see myself in any of this. I'm trying. Um, and they're declaring their autonomous subjectivity nonetheless. Rachel, I love that you that you said that. Um, and I was thinking about um, when you were mentioning in, in 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 your in your in the introduction to your book when you talk about um, storytelling, right? And storytelling as a form of building a complex and nuanced sense of identity, and sort of that really resonated for me with what I feel like I described the esthetes doing using a sort of I use a different vocabulary. Um, but similarly, I do think that while, how should I phrase this? Okay, so Foucault does teach us very important, accurate things, I, I believe, about um, discursivity and how dis uh, discourse um, creates uh, a sense of subjectivity and makes us feel that it's kind of internal and self-created rather than, like, I, I buy all of that. Um, but something I, I keep coming up with 
uh, are coming against, uh, not just in writing this book, but even moving forward, is, is precisely, okay, let's say that that's all true. What do we do with that? Um, and when I looked at the Victorian esthetes, of course, they're not, uh, they're obviously not reading or anything like that, uh, <laughs> but they are engaged with these um, scientific discourses in the late 19th century that are very much questioning autonomous subjectivity, uh, you know, in a very different, in a very different key and in a very different intellectual universe, but are also dealing with this notion that like, maybe there isn't a sense of, of self and painter is obsessed with that notion. Um, but they're coming at it from the perspective of, okay, let's say that this is true. Then, and, and Peter even says this in his essay on Winkelmann, right? Um, the, the task of art is to create an equivalent for that lost sense of subjective autonomy. Mm. And you, you might say, well, Peter, that's a bad idea. We shouldn't be doing that. But when I was writing about him and, and the fellow estates, I'm like, okay, let's, you know, what if we took, sort of what you're saying, Rachel, what if we, for, for a moment at least, take seriously how they thought about themselves and how they thought about themselves in relation to the world? And they thought of themselves as having some form of autonomy or agency. Let's, let's take that seriously. Maybe there's something to be gained by us in in the modern period um maybe there's something that we can learn by looking at these individuals who are still invested in this way of being in this category um despite knowing it to be maybe not uh, uh, metaphysically real in, in the way we might like one of the fascinating things about the conversation and about the two books is how statements about the historical figures that you both study also become statements about your work. So Dustin just said how lovely it is to, one of the best reasons for writing a book is hearing other people talking about it. I feel like quite a few people that you studied might say the same thing. And that notion of, of relating to narratives, but also intervening in narratives and charging, charging your own narratives in the name of escaping the kinds of scientific objectification, if that's the right word, which is happening in the period, um, is really fascinating. And with apologies for dragging us back to, to the beforeness, I, I'm fascinated by how before also sort of works as an after, that this, this is uh, that both books are after and as a result of the things that are in the rest of your title. And the same is true, I think, for, for the writers. And again, both very, very different books, but working through case studies um, of various kinds and in various different ways, and really richly fascinated by and fascinating about the issue of time in the lives that you're studying. So for example, hearing that Pater firstly only does late style because everything is late in Pater. That's fascinating, right? And someone who is um, sort of being forced into becoming a homosexual by the discourses around him. Um, and on the other hand, and Rachel, forgive me, I'm not gonna pronounce the surname correctly. Jules Lafroy? Jules Lafroy, yeah. <laughs> um, not yet ready when she returns from war, from the Austro, uh, from um, the Prussian French war, not yet ready to introduce this new version of herself to the public view. It's a quotation. Um, I mean, I think that's really fascinating how you both capture uh, these, these figures um, in the act of reflecting on their own, own autobiographical position in time, who they were, who they're becoming, um, both under their own volition and as a result of the discourses around them. Um, it's really fascinating. Rachel. Yeah, and someone pointed out to me, which I hadn't really 
you know, thought about, in my conclusion, I talk about visiting Judafwa's house for the first time. Um, and someone, you know, asked, well, so you're just being, you're an explorer, just thought, you know, what are you discovering about yourself? And I was like, did I put that in there? Wait, what? Good question. Right. And then I was so, you know, I saw um, Dustin's conclusion where he also has this very personal moment. And I think that's so interesting. And I think that there's a reason that we're literary scholars writing this and it's about our relationship to texts and stories and that understanding, you know, as much as I was writing a very specific book about you know, trans before trans in the 19th century, um, and I didn't want to make it about myself, I really did relate to this idea that we are all trying to translate ourselves into language. Um, that was what clicked for me in understanding what it means to exist um, with this, with gender variance um, in society, you know, in the world, in a world that's not that doesn't have language necessarily even. And it's not that it's not a progress narrative either. I think that so many of the debates around language today are about that, this like hyper pronounced sense of being excluded from language that continues even when there is sort of communal language to describe things. Um, so, um, so, but one of the things I'm noticing as I'm trying to pull out my methodologies to articulate them more specifically is that there is this idea that you might, we can sort of refer to Jack Halberstam's notion of a queer time and place, um, that there are these, you know, queer trans times, timelines. And we could talk also about the, the lines between queer and trans because um, I'm sort of proposing trans as a broader framework that includes queer, can include feminism. Um, and that while in theory, queer theory, includes trans and usually has an LGBT in it, in practice, at least in my field in the 19th century, has really neglected gender identity um, and people's sense of their gender, right? Um, which did exist, you know, which these, the, my research shows like really profoundly existed, um, but it wasn't something that was separate, obviously, you know, just as homosexuality wasn't like fully an identity at the time. Um, it, these things weren't totally separate. So part of what my work is trying to do is um, to really widen that lens and, um, and, and which has been obscured part by saying, uh, but thinking too much about sexuality as an identity, even though we sort of know, you know, the um, caveats of that. And so we think we, we end up inadvert unwittingly really putting people into these categories or saying, well, oh, this is queer and not trans. Whereas I just want gender identity to be part of how what we think about, you know, and we don't have to not think about it just because it looks like a same sex um, kind of relationship. Um, so, um, so that queer time um, or trans time, I'm starting to, to to notice other ways in which that's part of the storytelling. It's part of the the trans genealogies that I um, kind of lay out. At all of these writers look to other historical figures. They couldn't find examples in the 19th century. Here comes Foucault again, partly because of how um, the 19th century medical discourses um, sort of covered up and tried to name things. Well, they weren't, they didn't understand trans. They didn't understand gender. Um, and so they don't really name it. It's subsumed by category, by inversion and these other theories. And it's, you know, it's just coming down. It's going to get articulated in the early 20th century, but in, it's not really there yet. So it's not in the discourse. So people really can't find themselves in the discourse, but they can find many models of transness historically. Um, and so they look back, they found that they find the Chevalier Dion 
or Chevalier, uh, actually, because um, she seemed to be more identified with femininity. They find the Abbé de Choisy. They find the so-called transvestite saints, right? There are, are all of these models once you don't have to sort of place them in one category um, or another. And so um, and so they're each three, each, the three of these, while they're writing vastly different kinds of stories, um, they have this kind of genealogical impulse, which I thought was so powerful. And then I found examples of people modern, that's your before and after. And it's so funny, I'm actually giving a talk called After Trans in a couple of days. And I was like, what do I mean? I actually just mean before trans, I just needed to call it something new. It's the same thing, right? They're like, after we have trans, we can. So, so there you have it. But then I was like, oh, are people gonna think that I mean it's over? I don't mean, obviously that would be horrible. Um, anyway, so, um, but in some of these like later works, like Leslie Feinberg um, in uh, Transgender Warriors, that's, I think that's, yeah. Um, there's a picture of Jane de la Foy and her husband and Feinberg doesn't seem to know who they are, but it just looks like something that would be in that category, which also with these kind of um, gender outlaws, Kate Bornstein, some of these texts do not make distinctions. This is just from about 10 years ago, 20 years ago, aren't making distinctions between queer and trans in those genealogies either. Um, and so there's this kind of recursive thing that not only is trans not new, but trans history isn't new. And that these earlier generations of um, people living, you know, gender variant, um, not gender nonconforming, whatever you want to call it. I use it sort of in the most expansive way. Um, they were looking for their, um, their, you know, what I call their gender fluid kin. They were looking for others like them, and they looked. They didn't just look across town. They couldn't find anyone, and they didn't have those kind of built-in communities. So they looked across time as well. And I sort of want to add to that, um, and moving towards Dustin to, to respond to Rachel, but I sort of want to add to that, that um, European people surely always had been looking for those things. And what is striking, I think, and both you correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I think what's striking about the moments you're studying is not that this is happening, but that it's being documented, that this is that there's a, a longer history here of queer and trans yearning for genealogies and yearnings for language and identities and actually what's really distinctive is in Rachel's case a collection of people who are not in correspondence with each other in Dustin's case a group of people who are really intimately connected to each other um, speaking out loud uh, but Dustin do you want to respond to either what, what Rachel has said or yes absolutely um Rachel, what really resonated uh, with me about what you were just saying was um, sort of this kind of mismatch between what's going on in queer theory and queer studies and in, in trans studies and trans history. Um, and I think that that's exactly right. And here I'm, 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 here I'm just echoing what uh, trans studies scholars have said, but this idea that in, in queer theory and queer studies, um, transgender individuals are often brought up as an example of like, oh, gender transitivity or something like that, rather than being studied kind of in their own, in their own right. Um, and I think that that's something that your book does such an excellent job pushing against that um, in ways that are, that are really helpful and inspiring. But, but Andy, getting to, to your question, um, what I found kind of liberating uh, when, when, when going about uh, writing 
first what was my dissertation, but then, and then my book was um, sort of self-consciously putting to the side the question of like whether or not these authors are queer because I sort of thought, well, I mean, they are. Like you just, I mean, it's there, it's, it's in the text. Like there's not, there's not a whole lot of, you have to do a lot of work to not see it there, right? <laughs> these authors are all like pretty obviously and like more or less explicitly talking about queer sexuality among themselves, right? Um, and, and thinking about what that means for, for their sense of self, right? And, and, and for their for their selfhood um, and and Rachel you brought up the 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 coda of, of my book which I almost didn't put in there because you know it's it's a little personal um, and we're just we're often discouraged to do that sort of thing um, but it's the the coda of the book is about uh, me as kind of a, like a proto queer teenager um, trying to find whatever gay books I can find in my local library, of which there weren't a lot. I'm from a very rural area. And and trying to kind of um, gain a sense of self through through those readings. And I think there is sort of an implicit parallel I'm drawing there between myself as a scholar and, and what these other figures were doing. And uh, Rachel, and what, what, the, what the figures you're talking about are doing as well. And it's sort of looking to the past, right? And it's not as simple as looking to the past to find yourself, because that's, you're not gonna, it's not gonna be that easy. And I don't think that that's what happens. And in the code of the book I talk about, that's not what happened to me either. It's not uh, about looking at a text from the past or a work of art from the past and being like, oh, there I am. Rather, that encounter is the beginning of a very kind of difficult and arduous journey, right? Of sort of seeing maybe maybe glimmers of aspects of yourself, which then kind of cause you to have to reassess how you've thought of yourself and your subjectivity. Uh, and then that very process of questioning and in some ways can be quite shattering. Um, leading to um, a more uh, a more open um, uh, sense of self, a sense of self which is more open to um, instability and change and, and questioning. Um, and that seems to be, uh, it, it's, it's neither like this kind of simple one-to-one -one identification, uh, but neither is it, well, let's be very critical about, about critical identification. It's more like, let's understand this as being a very arduous and complex process. Yeah, I mean, I, I, this has made the, the real heart of the two books, that it's about a kind of live, real-time investigation of what was a live and real-time past, looking not for a mirror, but for, um, for potential materials for, for a future. And both of your coders and again see another way in which the books have these really fascinating similarities make incredibly important calls um for thinking about the future um dustin's book ends by asking us how we might glimpse the otherwise inconceivable queers of the future uh rachel's book ends by asking about a kind of linguistic affirmation the relief of existing in language which doesn't become all defining um and um 
that relationship with time, but also I think with language is really fascinating across the books. If it's right for me to make a little a little move to a kind of literary question now, uh, we're a literary website, or we're mostly a literary website anyway. Um, and I thought that the issue of, of prose style in particular was really fascinating across the two books. Um, on the one hand, we've got figures like um, Pater, who talks about a transcript of a sense of fact rather than the fact itself. Um, and this notion of kind of escaping into a concern with with form on the one hand, as a form of self-protection, I think Dustin is saying. On the other hand, we've got a figure like uh, Jules Foy, who in the, the early work, um, Rachel, you describe as burying subversive storylines in conventional and sentimental prose. I can't promise you're selling those books to me with that description, but nevertheless, I'm fascinated by that issue of, of prose style. Um, maybe if we start with Dustin, first of all. Yeah, where does prose style sit, do you think? Yeah. That's a great question, especially uh, with in relation to Pater, right? Who has sort of famously um, what some would call a, a, a rather purple prose style, um, and Pater is one of those authors. Um, along, Henry James is often brought up as as the paradigmatic example of a, a notion of, of queer style, and that would be um, a style which, it, through its kind of exuberance and performativity and kind of self-conscious artificiality does become a way of, of closeting the subject within within complexity mm. um and that is sometimes true i think but um pater is so attentive to the aesthetic effects of pro style upon the reader um in an often very explicitly self-conscious way, as you said, um, he uh, Pater has the sense of, of what he calls the imaginative sense of fact, right? This idea that like encountering a fact is not just you know an empirical experience, but there's an aesthetics to fact. Um, um, there's there's a there's a there's a feeling that you get when you encounter when you encounter facts, and wh what I end up proposing is that this very kind of self-conscious. Um, at the time it was called euphuistic style, a style that self-consciously uh, uh, sort of calls attention to its own artifice was really a way of trying to communicate the difficulties and the complexities of queer selfhood to a, a non-queer audience. Um, and the, the, it is rooted in this idea uh, which is that being queer is kind of a gift that needs to be shared with everybody. And that literature is actually a way of sharing the gift of queer subjectivity to the whole world, um, right? So it's not about hiding so much as it is about this like kind of expansive generosity. Um, yeah. I love that. That's fantastic, thank you. I should say I deal with the issues of queer and trans history in my own work in the 16th century, including John Lilly, who was responsible for this terrible word, euphuism. And Dustin, I'm, I'm desperate to get you back for a sequel one time so we can talk a bit more about, about euphuism. But thank you, I love the idea of um, the kind of ge expansive generosity. Um, uh, Rachel, where does pro style fit for you um, in all or one of your writers? Would you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, part of um, the uh, the initial conception of the project was realizing, so Jenny Lafoy was beginning my project because 
they were in my previous book on women's magazines there, which was about the hyper feminine um, model of femininity that women could have it all. Um, and then there was Jane de la Foy alongside her husband in these beautifully tailored men's suits, the exception that proves the rule. So I just wanted to know what, what's going on there. Um, because everyone, you know, there wasn't, I wasn't that I discovered Jane de la Foy, there are all this, there's, there's, there's all kinds of writing and biographies that explain, well, she was, staunch Catholic um, and explorer and war men suits to fight in the Franco-Prussian Franco war. And isn't that interesting? Um, and it's sort of like period, you know, and that was like, question mark, there's so much story there. What, you know, we've sort of lost the biographical piece of these fascinating figures, at least sort of in my, in, in the 19, in France. Um, so then I had to get these really boring historical novels out of the life, you know, from, you know, from the, the PDFs from the, um, the national French national library and such 500 pages on, you know, medieval, uh, historical novel. And I'm thinking, Oh God, what, have, you know, what am I doing? This is not, um, I just don't, after working on women's magazines with all these gorgeous art deco stuff, it's just like, okay, well, let's see if there's anything here. And suddenly she's chopping off her hair and becoming a monk. <laughs> um, and I, you know, it was, it, re it immediately rewarded me, but you know, a lot of people, it was easy to miss this in a sense, um, easy, but not easy. And so, um, and Judafa even had this kind of prologue about um, historical writing and people think that it's to this and to that and, um, and a sort of defense of it, um, that it's too boring, but um you know, so the, so it doesn't, it's not decadence. I worked a lot on decadence in my, in my PhD um, and naturalism, Zola and, um, and, you know, all this fun stuff. Um, and it's just not, it's just not any recognizable 19th century literary movement. Um, and yet the bells went off in my head because I was like, this is Rachild's story. The book that I was reading was called Frère Pelage, Brother Pelagius. Um, and I'm thinking, Mr. Venus, the titles are almost this, like this is actually the same story um, at its core, um, story shape even, if you think about it, you know, same kind of hero's journey situation, um, but just totally different prose, totally different genre, but it's about the same gender issue um, and crossover and, and grappling with it. And so originally the book was just those two, because if people know Hashield um, and they don't know Judafwa, except it, you know, they're very conservative and, and very opposite. So the idea that these two figures in the same place and time were sort of going to the to the discourses, to the narrative structures, which with with which they identified to tell their stories and to read them next to each other, we could recognize this other thing that was going on underneath it all. Um, that's what really drove me in the in the first place. And then I I kind of came to Multifu and um, to, to round things out. Mark de Multifu was writing on another totally other different different um, style. So so that was as a literary scholar definitely part of what was really interesting to me and hard to articulate in a literary methodology. Um, in terms of what I was doing, because right, people like you're doing biographical reading of fiction. How dare you? You know, what what have you done with with Bart and and Foucault and what what's happening here? Um, but I was using you know the I was using the other Bart of mythologies and of close reading and of you know textual analysis and um, in that sense. Yeah, I was going to say it feels a, 
part and parcel with with the the breakup with Foucault. I wish you luck with that breakup. Um, and 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 Dustin points out that um, Foucault himself kind of breaks up with Foucault on the issue of. Of, of authorship, but it does feel like in the late 60s, early 70s, two French men were killing off authors before really women had been given their due as authorial agents in history and in contemporary periods. So there is so much work um, to be done there. Um, we are heading towards uh, the close now. I feel a little bit ashamed of how little we've scraped the surface of these wonderful books. And again, I might have to invite you both back for sequels and uh, a series of films because Really, we've looked very little at the case studies themselves and, and occupied the, the, the space of methodology, but I think people will find that really fascinating. And scholars watching this, I think, will find it especially um, useful. So I'm, I'm excited to get this out there. If we do get you back, I'm particularly interested to think about um, one of Rachel's writers arriving uh, in Persia by French warship. I'm not, I'm not really, I'm not, I don't, I'm not familiar with writers traveling by a French warship. You know, that feels like a, a whole new way of travel. Um, and, and, the, and the history of colonialism, I think in both of your projects is something I'd be really interested to talk about. I'm just parking that idea there. I'm sorry, I'm not inviting conversation because um, because of time, um, but we close Buy the books, you know, at books, at, buy them at wherever books are sold. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Find out the rest. <laughs> yes, thank you. Let's tantalize our audience absolutely by the books. Um, we close our films by asking what the word literature means to you. And you're welcome to answer this um, from a professional point of view, from a personal point of view, or from the point of view of the people you've, you've researched. Perhaps if we start with uh, Dustin, um, literature, where does that word sit for you? Uh, yes, I will. Um, you know, I, I'm not being uh, prescriptive at all here. Uh, let me say at the outset, but my sense of literature, I have to say, is um, very much uh, borrowed slash stolen from Walter Pater. Um, and I, I'm freely admitting that right now. Um, but for, for me, literature is not so much, uh, I don't think of it so much in terms of objects, right? Like a literary object, I'm less interested in that question. And I'm more interested in defining literature in terms of an approach that one has um, to a text, although I don't know if all the time it has to be a, a text. But for me, it is an approach to a work that takes into account the role of the aesthetic and aesthetic experience in the creation of meaning. And that's how I understand it. Thank you. Yeah, that aesthetically self-aware notion of literature really runs through the way he uses the word verse to mean all literature, whether whether poetry or not. Yeah. Yeah, that's really strange. Yeah, for Peter, all, all, yeah, all, yeah, for Peter, all literature is poetry yeah. because all literature that is literature is concerned with form. Yeah. Thank you. Rachel. Yeah, so I think to sort of weave into that, um, I'm struck by the pathos that we have both sort of tried to reinsert into this history. Um, I think that's where we get our personal narratives woven in. Um, and so kind of more recently, I've been thinking about literature as um, empathy generating um, and that piece of it, right? That personal way in which we connect to it that we don't necessarily talk about or talk about in literature departments. Um, but I think that drives our work, and I think it's clear that it's driving um, both of us. 
And I think it's interesting to think about how and right, and obviously drove these writers to insert themselves, right? It's just this idea of selfhood being contained and expressed um, in literature, literature as an expression of self. And so that we felt that we had to express ourselves in writing about these people expressing themselves. And we couldn't not identify with that in some way, because that is somehow what what drives us and what makes us passionate. If I may speak for you, Dustin, having known you for an hour. No, absolutely. And also this idea that like, this expression of self is not kind of a simple thing, right? right? That's precisely like why we we study literature, right? This expression of self or the communication of selfhood is an immensely complex and fraught process, but it's still an expression of self, right? Yeah, at the end of right. the day. Right, and the realization that by reading, and so I'm also struck that you're in a literature department as opposed to an English department, or a French department. And I um, got, as an undergrad, I was a lit major at Yale. Um, I say that in the nineties, because it was a place where it was sort of the tail end of semiotics. And so we talk, we treated everything as text. And I realized that that really, really informs how I read I, and, and how I go through life. It makes everything more interesting. Um, and so I think those things are connected. We tend to think of them as not, right? Because in that literature department, in that semiotic situation, the author was dead um, and we weren't supposed to think about it that way. But somehow, because we read that way and we are attentive to these hidden meanings, we've become, I don't know if it's of this generation or what, we, we've become tuned to. And so we realize, and as historians of text, because I, I feel myself as that, as well, these are historical objects, access to the past to work on the 19th century, that texts, we've come to realize that, that selves are transmitted that way, right? That's why we are so certain. I love how you were like, they're queer, right? So much of what I had to do, you know, I read these, these this, that Jules Lafoy, and I was like, okay, speaks for itself, case closed, you know, but I had to convince them, people were not ready for that at all, you know? And, and I remember being like a really cocky PhD student which I, I wasn't, I was also super anxious, anybody listening. Um, but I must've come across cause I was talking about Monsieur Venus actually in my feminist reading phase of that, you know? And, um, and I remember saying, well, just read <laughs> to the people in the room because they weren't, it was so obvious to me, you know, some of the stuff that was in there just kind of viscerally. So I think that there is that piece. And I think as literary scholars, I think we're both somehow in the in enterprise of trying to recover that, believing it intuitively. And how do you translate what you know intuitively because of your training, because of the way you relate to text into an argument <laughs> that is readable and accessible? Right. Like, how do you how do you capture this kind of the quiddity of your your encounter with the text in into in discursive language? Right. Which is also what our authors, I think, in many ways are trying to do as well. in another kind of uh, instance of, of mirroring. Yeah. And I have to say the whole like just treating the authors as queer and going on from there. Um, I, I did end up having to put in a footnote. Explaining why I was doing that. So that was my capitulation. Uh, but the rest of it, yeah, I just sort of, I, I decided to just kind of size up the question by being like, yeah, they're queer and moving on from there. Um, yeah, and also this idea of, of I, 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 yeah, it, it, reading your book, it totally doesn't surprise me that you graduated with a literature degree um, and this kind of expansive sense of, of the literary, uh, which is, I think, where my own kind of expansive sense of the literary comes from, being in 
the department that I that I'm in at American, which as you said is a literature department. It's not specifically an English department, and we have scholars who work in kind of the more um, traditional literary fields. We have film studies and cinema people. Uh, we have people who do cultural studies. Uh, people who work on non-Western, uh, non-English language texts. Um, so in a very kind of practical day-to-day -day matter, it's the very kind of expansive notion of, of what constitutes the literary. And then our students graduate and they're sort of like, yeah, it's all literary, right? They, they have no sense that like, oh no, this is like something that is like a contested, highly contested um, term in, 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 in our field. And it's sort of, um, wonderfully and refreshingly pragmatic in that way. Thank you both very, very much. I'm gonna end just by citing um, three things that you've said, if that's all right, and then wrapping up. But I was really struck by Dustin talking about the people that you're studying, um, building and cobbling together forms of identity. I think it was Rachel who talked about trying to translate ourselves into language. And that's, that's a thread that's been running through everything that we've been, we've been saying. And Rachel also said that uh, I'm not saying, and I'm not not saying, and at the risk of troubling that beautiful ambiguity, I feel like we are also saying, and I love that. Um, thank you both very, very much. Um, I urge everyone watching this to go away and buy these books um, and uh, revel in their richness. Um, but for, the, for now, thank you both very much. Thank you, so fun. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thank you. Take care.